So to be clear, the term open source hadn't really permeated the consciousness yet by that point. And the term free software was discouraged in terms of in terms of like where it was being used and documented and stuff. Of course, it showed up whenever I was like loading Emacs and would say Emacs is free software, you know, see license and whatnot. But like I didn't intrinsically understand what it is. What I did understand, though, was that the software was freely available and I could see the code and that it was possible for me to make it better and to me to understand how it works. So I grokked the benefits without understanding what it meant. Um, and I think to me, the most important aspect about free and open source software was it was just more accessible. It made it possible for me to do things that I don't think I would have been able to do otherwise. So with me today on the show is Neil Gompa. Neil is a longtime Fedora and OpenSUSE member and developer. Uh, Neil, thanks for taking the time to sit down and talk with me today. Yeah, JT, nice to talk with you. It's, it's always great uh, having a conversation with you. Yeah, so to start off, let's talk about Linux distribution board positions because there's Fedora, there's OpenSUSE, there's Magia. So I can only guess that you are collecting board positions like Infinity Stones um, and you have some dark, dark plan in head. So my questions are, A, are you a supervillain? And B, what are the final stones that you still need to collect before you can pull off your plan? <laughs> I don't think I'm a supervillain, or maybe. I don't know. I guess from some people's perspective, I might be. Uh, you know, some people are a little bit uh, weirded out by me being involved in so many Linux distributions. Um, but if we want to talk about, you know, what are the remaining stones that I want to get, uh, you know, I'm involved in the CentOS project, and, uh, and and my involvement in there is increasing on a daily basis. And I'm also involved in Open Mandriva as well, although I don't know if they've got a formal like board structure. I can really do anything in there, or if there's even any reason to do so. I'm I'm generally involved as a as a pretty high level contributor. And yeah, so like, and there's also Rosa, and I've done a little bit in Debian and Ubuntu, though I don't I don't foresee myself going deeper in there because it's uh, for, for reasons. Uh, so does that pretty much, is that a good summary of all of the various projects that you're in? Or do you also have a bunch of others that you're, you dabble in as well? I dabble in a lot of projects. So I'm all, I kind of all over the place as some people say, uh, like my, my fort, my speciality, if you will, is uh, in Linux systems management and, uh, Linux distribution engineering. So that's where you'll see me doing a lot of things like image building tools, distribution creation tools, um, software management, mass systems management, that sort of stuff. So like some projects off the top of my head, I run the Fedora Live CD tools project. So I also make appliance creator and image and live CD creator. Uh, I'm, I'm a, a contributor to the Kiwi project, which is SUSE's image build tool. Uh, I've done a little bit in Anaconda and Lorax. Uh, I've done a, some, I, I'm playing around a little bit with OS build and I've done some stuff with the core OS assembler. And I, in terms of mass system management, I was involved in the spacewalk project. Um, when that turned, when that wound down, 
I moved on to the Uyuni project, which is the spacewalk fork being run by the wonderful folks at SUSE. And I do, you know, a little bit here and there across the board. Now, would you consider yourself professionally taught or self-taught or kind of a mix of both? I would probably say I'm a mix of both. Like I, my open source involvement actually predates my professional, uh, you know, my what I guess you would say professional talk, because like I went to. I went to school and got a degree in software engineering. So I guess from that perspective, by trade, I'm a software engineer. But my open source involvement predates my getting a degree and me even going to college. Like I started getting involved in open source uh, projects, uh, in the Fedora project in particular, um, when I was in middle school. So that was so like that all predates um, my professional my professional education in software engineering. So I guess you could say I'm predominantly self-taught, but like I'm a mix of both, really. Okay. Was Fedora the first project that you ever contributed anything to? No, it wasn't okay. actually. So what was the first? The, so the first project, oof, let me see, the Virtual Dub project. And the Virtual Dub project is a project to make like a not uh, a really simple Windows-centric um, editor, uh, open source uh, video and audio editor. And I made an installer for it using NSIS, the Nullsoft scriptable install system. So that was actually the first thing I ever did. Now the project didn't accept it, but I continued I continued to make it available for other people who found it interesting. Um, and then later on, I worked with another person, um, Dan Fury, on the Experience UI, which was a mod for NSIS to make it look fancy. Like if you saw the uh, NVIDIA um, installers, uh, the NVIDIA driver installers, the GeForce Experience installers, and Catalyst installation, like they looked all fancy and stuff. And this added kind of that fancy skin, like the Install Shields type skins onto an SIS. And I worked on that for a couple of years with him. And then we worked on the Inano CMS project together, which was creating a content management system with access controls and stuff like that, kind of fancy features and stuff, using Wicked Text. So this was before Markdown became mm -hmm. something that the people really knew and it was cool. Like, I, I think Markdown really came into the scene in like 2008 or 2009, and a nano CMS predated it by several years. So we used Wicked Text, and, and that was really my first open source projects involvement. And actually, it was because of a nano CMS that I got involved in Fedora, because I started contributing packages in there and getting involved in... Uh, in working on trying to make a nano CMS run better on Fedora and doing other things in that in that space. Do you remember like because obviously Fedora has been around for for more than a more than a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. Do you remember what version that would have been that like when you first started? You mentioned that you were in middle school when you you know were doing stuff. Do you remember what ver about what version that was? Yeah. Um, so the first version of Fedora that I'd actively contributed into was Fedora Core. Six, I think Fedora Core Six was the first release that I that you could probably say that I have a commit in the CVS that made those things. So back then, Fedora used CVS and not Git. Mm -hmm. And uh, but the first, but I've used Fedora since the beginning because I actually started with Red Hat Linux. Red Hat Linux six point two was what was available in a book in my local library, and so I started with that. That was back in two thousand and one, two two thousand two, I think. And then from there, I just kind of kept going. When I heard Red Hat Linux was being discontinued for Fedora, I went on to Fedora Core 1, 2, 3, 4, and kind of kept going. And actually, when Ubuntu first released, I missed 4.10, but like Ubuntu 5.04, the Breezy Badger was the first release of Ubuntu I used. And I used Fedora and Ubuntu in parallel for many years before I basically switched whole, fully over to Fedora entirely for my stuff. And there were many complicated reasons for that, but... 
yeah, I used to be heavily involved in both the Fedora and Ubuntu communities. I used to be involved in the Ubuntu user forums. I used to do documentation stuff, helping with the uh, paper cuts initiatives and stuff like that. Yeah, so. So you, you find a Red Hat version you mentioned in your library. So were you just browsing the shelves one day and found something that looked interesting? Or did you actually go there looking for for that information? Like, how did you come upon knowing that Red Hat was even a thing? So I didn't know that Red Hat was a thing when I, when I did that. So I, I started doing that because the kids' computer lab was full and there was no computers for me to use to play games and stuff like that. And normally I'd be going there and playing edutainment games like Carmen San Diego or whatnot. So I went down and I went to go look for, uh, you know, just to read up on technology stuff. And I was looking at Windows things and then right next to it was a Linux section and there and I didn't know what Linux was. And I found these books here and there was a book on Mandriva or no Mandrake, Mandrake Linux. because Mandriva wasn't a thing yet. And Red Hat, there was mastering Red Hat Linux um, from Sam's Publishing or something like that. Red Hat Linux, the hard way. I forget which book it was, but what I do remember was that the book had the wrong version of Red Hat Linux in it. So, like, someone had stolen the CDs and had been swapped out. And so there was there was different CDs in there that didn't match the version of Red Hat Linux in the book. But I was just excited at the idea of doing something, like, actually quite different because... This was also at the point where I had started hitting the peak of what I could do in Windows. So I was I was Windows user at the time. I'd gone I started with Windows 3.1 on DOS and to 95 and 98 and NT4 and, and XP. Uh, and there just wasn't much for me to do anymore because Microsoft had started the you know it started that trend of locking down Windows with Windows XP. And you know not for bad reasons, but my kid brain didn't really understand what was going on, and I was super annoyed that I couldn't do things like customize it with my favorite visual style with a custom theme and stuff like that. And then I went down this road of using, uh, and I found this Linux thing, and it was showing me pictures of a different desktop environment, and one of the things that was mentioned there is that you have the freedom to use, customize, and modify, and you can see everything that makes it up, and I was, I was hooked. I was very interested in that. Uh, I promptly went and installed Red Hat Linux 6.2 on my computer and broke it because I didn't know how to configure a monitor because that was never a thing I ever had to do because uh, it always usually just worked and then it didn't and I burned out a, um, a semi-expensive CRT monitor. But, you know, I learned from that lesson. I kept going and I was undaunted and I, I kind of just kept going from there. So that would explain why the other week when I asked for your help in doing some configuration on an old Red Hat, Red Hat commercial Linux install, and you saw X configurator, you started to groan. Uh, yes. so you had some bad memories from that time. Oh yeah, I remember X configurator, and I remember Disk Druid, and I remember all of these things that people should not remember. Kudzu was both great and terrible. Kudzu, for pretty much everyone who's ever going to hear this, probably, was Red Hat's inventive, innovative, whatever word you have it, way for doing dynamic hardware detection and configuration. It was very good at what it did, but that also was a very low bar because everyone else was worse and it wasn't very good, but it was better than everyone else. And that was the important part. Yeah, things were definitely rough back in the day. Um... I was actually, I was talking with a friend of mine the other day, and I was saying that, because I run into this problem all the time when I'm explaining to people about how important documentation is, and they always kind of, ah, well, you know, it's important. I'm like, no, 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 it is, it is crucially important 
for people to be able to use and figure out how to do things. I want to start taking like an old Red Hat install because like the GNU utilities are all the same, but all like mm -hmm. the system utilities for how you configure it are completely different and just oh, sit yeah. them down and be like, here, configure a network. And they'll be like, uh, well, none of the commands I know work. And it's like, congratulations, you're now in the seat that tons of people are in every day. And wouldn't it be nice if you had some nice documentation right there with you that you could read and learn how to do it? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, like there was there was no way I was going to be successful if it weren't for the fact that there were, you know, I, I credit a lot of my early bring up into Linux um, to the Linux Bible series that was made by Christopher Nagus. Like he, the the book that finally got me comfortable with it was the one that included Fedora Core 4 in it. And I bought that book many times over because of unfortunate incidents and weather things that led to like my my copies of the book being damaged and i always wanted to have i want to have a copy of that persistently because like it's a reminder of where i started in terms of like really getting comfortable with linux so the linux bible series was fantastic for me back in those days and that book made it so that i could be like make it so i could understand what's going on in in my system and i got very successful at troubleshooting, diagnosing, detecting, and, and like fixing things in my system. Yeah, it's unfortunate that having a book for that nowadays is kind of no longer a thing. I mean, I know there are still places that put out, you know, short books, but that was one thing that I, I loved doing was I could be sitting at the computer, of course, without an internet connection because, you know, my network was down, and just flip open a book and have everything I needed and not have to be online or, or connected or anything. I actually, I believe I might have some old, I don't know if I have the Red Hat Bibles, but I know I have some old uh, Red Hat, they might be unleashed from that period. And I know I have, I think I have Fedora 1 through 8 of the Unleashed series. They're orange ones. Oh yeah. I have them all down in my living room right now. I used to love those books too, because they were, they were very quick to be able to actually see a real world example of a problem. And it wasn't just reading a man page, which is how I learned a lot was just reading man pages. And there's a lot of good information there, but sometimes you need a little context to really mm -hmm. be able to understand it. So you can internalize that info. I actually could not learn from the man pages. The man pages were completely and utterly useless to me. Um, nowadays I'm fairly good with understanding what to do when I look at a man page, but back then, no, I was like man pages or worse info pages. I didn't know how to deal with them partly because I didn't know how to navigate them because they used Vim style um, navigation and I wasn't good with that. And I know it, it would in the in the beginning, like it wasn't very well discussed, like how you change the editors or the pagers. And so I didn't know that I could change the pager or the editor to something that I could actually use. Um, so when I came on from the DOS and Windows world to Linux, um, the editor of my choice, of my preference, was Emacs because the key bindings were very similar to the ed the professional editors that I was using on Windows and on MS-DOS. And when I first started using open source, when I didn't even know it was open source stuff, um, predating my transition to Linux was with DJGPP, and the editor I used in there was Emacs for DOS. So. Like for me, Emacs was the editor that I kind of closely associate with my usage of free and open source software, because that was how I learned how to be successful working with open source stuff. Like GCC opened a world for me because before that, back in those days, and I'm sure you remember this, but back in those days, like in the 90s, you could not afford, uh, 
you could not afford a good compiler uh, because they were expensive. Um, they were hundreds of hundreds of dollars, and like a kid like me wasn't gonna get one. And and that was it was a big deal that Sigwin existed, and that uh, DJGPP existed because it gave me access to those things. Yeah, I was talking with a friend of mine a couple months ago, and. He mentioned that the the first piece of software that he bought was a compiler, and he had to save up for it so that he could actually buy it and then use it. And then he found open source, and he was like, oh, hey, GCC is a thing, and I can get it for free and use it. And oh, then there's also the whole OS that goes along with it, and that doesn't cost me anything either. So you would say that you were kind of aware of open source before you discovered Linux? Sort of, yeah. Like, I, I learned a little bit about open source. I didn't... So, to be clear, the term open source hadn't really permeated the consciousness yet by that point. And the term free software was discouraged in terms of, in terms of like, where it was being used and documented and stuff. Of course, it showed up whenever I was, like, loading Emacs and would say, Emacs is free software, you know, see license and whatnot. But, like, I didn't intrinsically understand what it is. What I did understand, though was that the software was freely available and I could see the code and that it was possible for me to make it better and to me to understand how it works. So I grokked the benefits without understanding what it meant. Um, and I think to me, the most important aspect about free and open source software was it was just more accessible. It made it possible for me to do things that I don't think I would have been able to do otherwise. So were there any specific people that pop into mind that kind of helped uh, helped form your ideas around free and open source software? Oh, uh, so my first, my mentor into the Fedora project. So back in, back in the, when I got started in Fedora, there was still the remnants of, of the mentorship program from Fedora Extras when the core, core Fedora Extras and the old Fedora US project merged into Red Hat Linux to become the Fedora project. There was a mentorship kind of thing that was there. And the leftovers of that are the current sponsors program that's used for like sponsoring new packagers into the into the distribution. Brian Peppel was the guy, and he he basically taught me how to do how to interact with people in the project, how to like communicate, and like what was what made open source stuff important and useful. Um, there was a few others. Um, uh, like the Fedora, uh, Max Spivak and, uh, and, and Robin and, and of course later on Matthew Miller, although he doesn't, he probably doesn't actually remember me from that time because I used a different nickname and I used to be paranoid about using my actual name back then. And so, so yeah, like these people left a big impression on me. Oh, and Thomas Cameron, he, he was a big deal for me as well because he taught me about security stuff. And like when I when I had a, a web server that had been hacked by uh, and and defaced, he showed me what I'd done wrong because I like I blindly followed stuff on the internet that says like how to set up the thing. And of course, one of those was disabling SE Linux and not having you know everything, you know actually on because it's like oh it just makes everything worse and there's no benefit to it. Like he showed me how to how to do it right, and that that I've taken that lesson uh, to heart. Um, and I've gotten to the point where like I know how to write SE Linux policies. I'm fairly good at it at this point. Um, I don't do it very often, but I'm fairly good at it. Uh, I, I take it, I, I make it a credit that it's like, I don't have to write them very often. Cause if I have to write them, then your application is doing something super weird. Um, but yeah, like there are a number of people I could attribute to as that. And then, 
I think over the years, my list of people who I could attribute to being successful in open source has grown. Uh, I think in the most recent period, I think I would say Richard Brown from the OpenSUSE project is another one I would I would attribute a lot of uh, my endurance and success in the OpenSUSE project to. He's been great and he made me feel welcome and valued in the project. And he, him and, and Matthew Miller, like in, in their respective roles and and positions like have encouraged me and many others to like actually keep going and do amazing things and like i credit both of them for fostering that kind of uh of environment so on the on the mentor project i know you mentioned that it's now kind of the sponsor thing for getting to become a package manager for or package maintainer yeah. yeah package maintainer for fedora but why don't why don't we see things like that more generally scale it doesn't scale. The The main problem with it is you need to have people who can pay attention with each other and hold on to those people. And like after a certain point, there are more people coming in than there are people who can reasonably mentor. And so it becomes really difficult to keep it going. Um, in some ways, Fedora is returning to its roots here, like they've reinvigorated this approach with the Fedora Join SIG, which actually does this sort of thing for people who don't know how to get started and stuff. But also another aspect is that open source has become a lot more customary in our in, in tech fields. Like to some degree, people already know what it is now and that they kind of are comfortable with it to some degree. There are people obviously still scared of contributing and stuff like that. But like in general, interacting with open source projects is not as scary to people now as it used to be. Um, but I would also say that and I think GitHub also just made it so that open source is a lot less um, personal than it used to be. So in the sense that um, you have a GitHub project, you put things out there, and GitHub up until very recently, like we're talking in the last year, has basically restricted communication flows to pull requests and bug reports. Like that really, ru that ruins the quality of the, of the experience of interacting between the project and the individual, and it makes it much more difficult for a community to properly form. Like a lot of the more successful projects that are sustainable uh, and that are wildly successful, like are predating GitHub, where they have mailing lists, they have their own source control systems, they have, and they have their own like norms and community practices and things like that. And all of those mean that there are people who are actively doing stuff together to uh, you know, to try to make it better as a whole. So like there's a community part to it. But a lot of post GitHub projects just straight up don't have an avenue to get there. Like you're just filing issues and adding pressure onto the maintainer to address them. And it's just, it just becomes super difficult for them. Do you, do you know if GitLab ha has that same problem of? It's worse. Okay. So GitLab is worse because GitLab doesn't even allow, you know, so. Uh, GitLab doesn't even allow something along the lines of what GitHub does is that you can go look at a code review and then you can say whether you approve or reject it or give feedback. Your feedback will be grayed out and it doesn't count towards the total reviewable or approval score. But in GitLab, you can't even do that at all because GitLab makes the assumption that only the owners of the repo have valid feedback. And so like GitLab's design is anti-community in that regard. Um, one, you know, one of the reasons why I like Pagur, which is the GitForge that Fedora has and is developed and, you know, community projects are starting to adopt 
uh, is that it puts everyone on equitable ground when it comes to reviews and feedback and comments and stuff like that. Um, anyone who tries to leave feedback or approvals or, or rejections or whatever, there is no distinguishing between whether someone's a maintainer of the repo or if they're an individual or a concerned third party or whatever. So everyone's on the same ground and it's a lot easier to consider everyone's feedback a lot more equally. Now that's a project you've actually worked closely with, right? Right, yeah. I've been involved in the Pagger project for, I wanna say three years now, since at least 2018, probably maybe even late 2017, but at least 2018. So here's an idea. How about we have a mentor program to create mentors? So then we can have uh, enough of us. We don't have to, we can get around the scale issue. Because yeah, as, as communities get larger, you are just going to run into a manpower limitation, mm -hmm. which I guess in a way isn't that bad because that's just a sign of success that we've actually been successful and we have brought thousands and thousands of people into a project. Speaking about about projects, what projects do you see that are working on new features, developments, ideas, or whatever that really kind of get you excited and encouraged? So recently I've taken a pivot to go kind of further up the stack. Like, so I use, I'm usually a plumbing guy and I tend to live at the bottom layers of, of a Linux distribution, but I've kind of taken a pivot to go a little bit further up the stack. And I've been doing uh, work in desktop Linux for the past year and a half or so. I would probably say I, I'm very encouraged by the developments in both the GNOME and KDE um, Plasma projects because they're both working towards making an accessible, high quality, visually appealing um, desktop experience on Linux. And they're both doing very good jobs at that in, in different ways. I personally kind of lean more towards KDE Plasma because I feel like that desktop experience tends to empower users more in the sense that, you know, the, the simple by default and powerful where needed kind of motto here makes it so that you can have like a, a pretty nice out of the box experience. And then if you feel like you want to have, you want to kind of make it your own, like have a little bit of a workflow adjustment to kind of fit with how your model of the world is supposed to work, you can actually do it very easily. It's not that GNOME can't do some of these things with extensions and stuff, but it's very clear that GNOME discourages this in general, and they've, they've got a very um, rigid view of how the user experience is supposed to work. And that's not bad, per se. That's, their, that's the way that they want to go, and that's fine. But personally speaking, I feel like KDE Plasma aligns more with my personal ethos of being able to empower users and giving them you know, essentially the same freedom and flexibility that I have as a developer, while not necessarily requiring the same barrier of entry. Like, I don't want people to have to learn how to write, you know, crazy JavaScript or editing C or C++ code to be able to say, I want to have, I want to have my panel on the opposite side and I want to have, you know, maybe some event fire and make, you know, you know, I want to have a hotkey binding or something like that. Like, Things that make sense for me as a person for when I'm working in my computer, I want to be able to do it and I don't want it to be hard. And so for me, I think KDE Plasma tends to align more on that. But like I'm generally encouraged by how desktop Linux development has been picking up over the past few years. And I really, really feel like we're getting to the point where desktop Linux is really getting to have a chance 
at taking over in the desktop space. I know there's the joke of the year of the Linux desktop. We're getting there. We are honestly getting there. Like last year, we got Fedora on Lenovo laptops. That's a big deal. Having Fedora Linux on laptops means that we have additional exposure that we've never had before. It also means we have to deal with new problems because being preloaded on computers is a completely different set of problems than installing on an, onto a computer. But I'm happy with that because it means that we're going further than we have ever gone before, and that's fantastic. Yeah, I've always felt that KDE was more familiar to people. Like, if you sit down, there's kind of an intuitive, if you've ever used Windows, which is the majority of people, you kind of kind of intuit how to use KDE. Things are a little bit name different, but they're generally kind of in the same spot. Whereas GNOME with its, we're going to redesign the desktop. And while I don't really like it, I understand that people do. And of course, I'm all for let's try every crazy idea we can come up with and see what works best. But I think that sometimes some of the things that get put into a desktop like GNOME are sometimes counterintuitive if you're not in that mindset. Like I know a while ago I tried to install, I forget which IRC client it is, but it's one that's kind of intended to bake directly into GNOME. And it took me probably 20 minutes to figure out that if I wanted to add my account, I had to actually do it in the GNOME account manager for the IRC client, not actually in the IRC program itself. Which again, I understand it because then there's one location in GNOME that you can control all of your accounts for all of your different things. But if you don't know that, you're just clicking around in the IRC client going, well, how on earth am I supposed to use this thing? Yeah, I, I think that GNOME kind of, they kind of suffer a little bit from an echo chamber kind of problem because one of the tragedies and advantages of GNOME, and I say tragedy and advantage because it's it kind of it kind of is a toss up depending on your perspective, is that GNOME is, on, is the default for all major Linux distributions. It is the only desktop for Red Hat Enterprise Linux and SUSE Linux Enterprise. It is the default uh, for Ubuntu. Uh, it is well, technically it's the only if you talk about Ubuntu in the form of flavors. Like the Ubuntu main flavor is GNOME. Um, OpenSUSE Tumbleweed has both GNOME and KDE, but you know it people. But because SUSE backs GNOME, like it's it's pretty well supported in there. Um, and Fedora Workstation is GNOME, even though Fedora KDE also exists. And Fedora KDE is release blocking, and it's just as important. It's not as obvious that it is. And so, like, GNOME enjoys a very privileged level of status in, in the Linux desktop space because of this. Uh, and I think that sort of reinforces that feeling that they don't need to deeply re-examine their perceptions of how things should work. Because from their perspective, they're successful. And it's very hard to argue that because they're on everything. So speaking about echo chambers, do you think that there are other other examples of where we have those in the Linux community? Now, myself, I like to, to you know try a whole bunch of different OSs or distributions and see how they do things, kind of try to understand the concept behind why they've built it. Because you can build a Linux distribution 14 million different ways if you wanted to. Do you think we have other spots just across the whole community where we do have those echo chambers? I think that's a natural consequence of how open source software tends to get developed. I don't even think it's necessarily bad, actually. To some degree, you need some kind of self-assurance and some validation in order to continue developing your project. 
Um, and in Linux distributions in particular, uh, that's always the case. Like, there is certainly an echo chamber, like, to some degree, there's got to be a group of people that are oh, that really like what's going on, uh, regardless, because that's how it that's how people move forward together. Like there are people, it, it's hard to classify that as an echo chamber because it might actually just be everyone's just kind of aligned, and that's fine. But of course, I, I as someone who is a person who is involved in multiple distributions and multiple communities, like I have seen the opposite side of this, where you know if I bring a new idea to the table or I bring an experience that I think is actually genuinely beneficial to the user or provides tangible benefits that could make the project more successful. And they don't like it because they don't want to hear it because it doesn't align with their worldview. Yeah, that can be a negative and that kind of sucks. But I think that's pretty much how open source even thrives in the first place. Like to some degree, there's got to be an echo chamber. There's got to be some narcissism involved and there's got to be a little bit of you know, just a little, a little bit of all those things to keep a project going. And I, and I say these because these are not good traits, but they're, they're un, like to some degree they're kind of required. You need to have that kind of not necessarily narcissism, I guess, but like self confidence that that your project is good enough to actually put out there, and that and that your work is good enough to be useful and usable. Because otherwise, I don't know how it would get out the door in the first place. Yeah. So for me, I always kind of term or think about echo chambers being where you get kind of that negative feedback loop within a, a small a small community or a small group. Uh, obviously, consensus itself is not a bad thing because you need consensus to, to, to be able to work together on a project and move the whole project forward. I'm just, I'm just kind of thinking out loud about what, what ways we as a community can make sure we don't cross the line from positive consensus into the well you're not part of this club so you're not allowed i don't know it's different for everyone because one of the issues i think is that there is this um stereotype of anti-social engineers and open source developers being people that you know live in their basements with their parents and just don't really hang out or anything like that with people and don't know how to communicate and uh, some a subtle uh, impact from that is I think it has encouraged people to not learn how to be social. Um, so they, you know, like I see in certain IRC channels and rooms and stuff like that where people talk about, you know, they talk very brashly and they talk very arrogantly and they talk very, um, uh, they talk in a very um, unfriendly way. And they say, well, everyone else is okay with it because this is how we, we've always spoken and everything's been fine. And and only you're having a problem with it, so the problem is clearly you. But like, all that means is everyone else has accepted that this is the way that that person communicates or whatnot. Like, it is a problem when people are like that, and it is it is a problem that the industry in general accepts those kinds of people and that they're generally okay with it, and it bleeds into everything else. And so that's like, I think that's really one of the, the bigger root causes, because if you're a more social person or you try to make yourself more social, like I have, like jumping around and being involved in communities and doing community events and stuff like that, um, you learn very quickly that you learn very quickly that being a, um, a difficult person like that is not a very successful way to garner interest and community. But 
if you don't ever visit other communities, if you don't ever interact with other groups, and if you don't ever do anything like that, I don't, I don't know how you will learn it. I was having a conversation the other week with a friend of mine, and he made a comment about I don't, I don't know if he was specifically talking about Linux and open source in general. He was, I, it may have been just kind of technology field wide. But his his comment was along the lines of that he felt that the biggest challenge that the IT industry faced in general is actually not the technical challenges that we deal with as our day job, but it's that kind of interpersonal human challenge of actually dealing with other people. Um, would you agree with that? Oh, for sure. That's that's kind of what I'm alluding to to some degree. I think I hate the term soft skills, but people use it a lot, so I'll use it here. Interpersonal communication and soft skills related to that is a very underrated skill, and it is not a skill people actively hire for. It is not a skill people actively train up for. It is not a skill that is as actively valued um, within the industry, within open source, within the commercial space, anywhere. And because this skill is not valued and because this skill is not considered required. And because this skill is not actively nurtured by a lot of people, this winds up being a much bigger problem. And you just see lots of people being like this. Like I can name off the top of my head a number of projects where it's just like, if it weren't for these couple of people who are, you know, really prominent, but really terrible, this project would be a nice one to get started in or get involved in. And that's why. So Obviously, I, I would assume that kind of working on those interpersonal skills is a piece of advice that you would give anyone who wants to get involved in technology. Um, are there other key points that you of advice that you would give new people who are maybe interested in getting in technology but don't really know if they fit or don't really know what they have to contribute? So I can give a practical ask, a practical suggestion, really, um, and that is, Start with a big project that has a whole lot of different people in a whole lot of different play, doing a whole lot of different things. So like I often say to people, check out Fedora or OpenSUSE because as big Linux distribution projects, they have a lot of people doing a lot of things. They have dedicated mentorship groups. You know, Fedora has the join SIG and OpenSUSE has got their own thing that they've got. Uh, and people can, you know, get talking to a specific person and like learn and grow and find something that they can do and kind of build up their niche and build up their experience and build up an expertise and then kind of grow from there. And so like whether that's code, that's documentation, that's um, community uh, work, like help Q&A forums, you know, all that stuff, like all of it matters. And if you want to, if you want to get started, like a Linux distribution project like Fedora or OpenSUSE, which have these things in place that makes it easier for people to get involved like that, you will find that it is much easier to get your feet wet in open source and really grow from there, whether you want to do, you know, code or not. Yeah, you and I are going to have to have a conversation with Matthew at some point because uh, I didn't even know Fedora JoinSig existed, which... I, I think is is kind of a bad thing considering I've, I've used Fedora for so long and I've known people in the projects for so long. Um, that might be something that needs a little a little extra love and, and a little extra promotion because for me, getting new people involved, obviously, you know, from just a purely practical point of view, 
is needed because people leave because, you know, they move on in life and we need new people to replace them. But beyond that is bringing new people in brings in an infusion of new ideas and new concepts and new thoughts of how to do things. And the more of those ideas that we get confronted with and we can then consider the better the project is going to be able to address what people need. I think that's true even beyond open source. That's probably just true in life in general. Like, you know, you don't, the best way to learn and grow as a person is to meet new people and, and consider their perspectives and grow your knowledge accordingly. Uh, and whether that's an open source or in some other field or even just life in general, I think that's a, that's a, that's a thing you should do. And what everyone should do. So it's it's ironic that you just phrased it like that because uh, earlier today I did an interview with two other people and uh, the discussion was entirely revolved around open source as a philosophy for life and how you approach open source and the giving and sharing of information and the working together. Really, if we can take those principles and kind of build on top of it, we're going to have a better society. Well, I, I kind of personally already do this. Like I, I would flip what you say on your on its head and say, like, my approach to open source is driven by my philosophy about life. I want to help people and I want to make the world a better place with the skills that I have and with what I'm capable of doing. And so I put time into writing code, doing tests, debugging things, doing write, uh, docs, uh, you know, asking, asking and answering questions and, you know, all these sorts of things uh, and doing even advocacy and stuff like that, because I feel that this is the way I can help make the world a better place and make it for a better society. And I firmly believe that free and open source software is a key aspect of making a the world a better place. Are there any things that you you know now having spent so many years as a developer and working in open source that you wish you had known before when you were just getting involved? Like if you could pop into a time machine and jump back to see yourself when you were younger, other than giving yourself the lottery numbers to win, uh, what other pieces of, of information would you want to pass on to yourself? I would probably say be prepared for bad people and don't let it discourage you. There was a time where like, there was there was a, a very uh, there was a time where I had a really bad interaction sustained for a couple of years that really drove me out of a project entirely. Um, this was many years ago, and and that and because of that, I left that entire ecosystem and I don't advocate for it and I don't talk about it very much. And if somebody kind of makes me talk about it, I'll say kind of nice things, but I won't I won't go further than that. And it's because of that. And it took a bit of encouragement and, and, and more effort than I, I, I kind of wished it did to pick myself back up and start doing stuff again in open source. So there was like, I think a two or three year gap in which I didn't do anything in open source. And that was, that was part of the reason why. Well, I'm glad that you have picked yourself back up and gotten back on the horse, as they say. Mm-hmm because I really do appreciate the work that you're doing in the, the multitude of open source projects that you're involved with. Neil, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with me today. The last thing I would ask is what piece of encouragement would you give 
anyone else as far as what they can do in open source or how do I want to phrase that question? I guess just what encouragement would you give people who are considering getting involved in open source? Start small in a big project and go from there because big projects can handle um, inexperienced people a lot better than, ex than small projects can. So pick a big project rather than a small one. Uh, a lot of people make the mistake that contributing to a smaller project is easier. Smaller projects are not easier. Smaller projects are usually harder because smaller projects require a stronger set of skills and often have um, people that with underdeveloped capabilities of community management. Bigger projects are way, way better to start with. Okay. Well, Neil, it's a great place to end on. Thanks again for taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah, thank you, JT. Always a pleasure and looking forward to do this again in the future. Yep, definitely. <laughs>